So we're walking through the book of Ephesians. Last week we were reminded that we are in a spiritual war and that we need to wake up and make sure that we're filled with godly things and not with worldly things and that we need to partake, partake, partake so much that we are overtaken by the things of God. Now at the end of chapter 5 and the first part of chapter 6, Paul is going to show us how God has set up certain relationships in our lives to be examples to the world of God's love. Marriage, family, work relationships, all of these should be a picture of Christ's love for us. So Paul starts off talking about marriage. In Ephesians 5, through 33, he gives us a clear example of how a husband and a wife should view their relationship with each other as pictures of the gospel. J.D. Greer says that uh, God has given marriage for two reasons. One, to make us more like himself, and two, to, make, and to put his love on display. So contrary to popular belief, God has a bigger picture for our marriages than just Cupid arrows and teddy bears and hugs and kisses. God's plan was way bigger than that. Ephesians 5.31 says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. See, the greatest love story ever is not Romeo and Juliet. It's not Marilyn Monroe and JFK. It's not Bella and Edward. And it's not even Kim and Kanye. Okay, those aren't the greatest romances of all time. No, the greatest love story ever is between Christ and the church. And every other romance pales in comparison and is a cheap knockoff. Ephesians uh, uh, verse 25 says that husbands should love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. So listen to this. This speaks of a husband that not only would give up his life, but give up himself for his wife. So this type of husband would not only die for his wife, but he would gladly let his wife pick the restaurant. <laughs> he's not domineering. He's not a control freak. And even though God has set him up as the leader of the home, he is the one that is making the sacrifices. Because real uh, leadership is sacrificial leadership, just like Christ outlined for us. See, we think these relationships were created to fulfill us. But no, they were created for us to fulfill someone else and to put the love of Jesus on display for all the world to see. See, a husband ought to love his wife with sacrificial love, willing to give up things for his wife. See, men, too many times the women are the one that are giving up and making sacrifices. But see, that's not how God intended it. Real leadership is sacrificial leadership. Ephesians 5.28 says, In the same way as Christ, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. C.S. Lewis, uh, Lewis says that marriage uh, and the marriage relationship is a ray of sunlight to the world that points back to the source of the light, the sun, the son of God. 
See, our marriages should be pictures of what Christ did for us. That's what real love is about, nourishing and cherishing, not just butterflies in our stomach, or even worse, uh, lust and pleasure. Those things are selfish, but real love is selfless. Real love is sacrificial. Young ladies, there is nothing sacrificial about a man pressuring you to give him your body that God reserved for marriage. See, it's not love when he's asking you to do something that is wrong. No, real love sacrifices for your betterment. Yes, sex is a gift, but it's a gift that is meant for the vows of marriage. And young ladies, your worth is not defined by some pimply 18-year-old boy. It's defined by an almighty and infinite God that loves you so much that he died for you. That's who defines your worth. I like having these ladies sit up here. That's good. You can look it right in the eyes and say it. Where's the, oh, the pimply boys are up there. There they are. <laughs> Once again, this verse that tells us that marriage is a, is a picture of Christ's love for the church. And that's Christ's love for us. But see, marriage is not meant, though, to be two people that are off in their own little world, totally consumed with each other. It's supposed to be a bright and a shining light of hope to the world. Verse 22 states that uh, wives should submit to their husbands, but that doesn't mean that the wife is inferior. In fact, the Bible is clear that Jesus himself submitted to God. So therefore, and he was equal to God. So the wife is not a slave. The wife it, it rather willfully allows her husband to leave, uh, lead and leave. That would be good. Uh, she willfully allows her husband to lead like a beautiful waltz. But see, even though marriage is a picture of God's love and it teaches us more about God's love, it's not supposed to replace God's love. See, a marriage that expects the other person to make them happy or give them joy and fulfillment is a marriage that is set up to fail. See, a husband cannot fill the needs in your life that only God was meant to fill and vice versa. See, the purpose of marriage is not to make you happy by giving you a perfect mate. It's to make you more like Christ by giving you an imperfect mate so that you can learn to forgive like Jesus forgave. See, marriage is meant to be gospel reenactment. I'm from uh, outside of uh, Gettysburg in Pennsylvania, and they do something there called Civil War reenactment, and they put all the old uniforms on, and they get the old muskets, and they, uh, they eat the food that they used to eat, and they talk the way that they used to talk. And no matter how many times they do it, the, the South always loses. And I'm not sure how the Confederates get the, the courage up to do this every time. They know where it's going. I mean, geez. Anyway, you can tell where I'm from, right? But they're reenacting the Civil War. And that's what our marriages are supposed to do. Our marriages are supposed to reenact what Christ did for us. And people should see you and your uh, acts towards your spouse and say, man, I think that's what Jesus would do. In chapter 6, Paul jumps into the family relationship. Husband, you can kind of take a, a breath of, ah, man, that's better. Verse 1 of chapter 6, it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in 
the land. See, this relationship is a picture to the world of our obedience to God. And children are commanded to obey their parents, and this teaches them how to obey God. See, young people, God did not give you perfect parents to make you happy. He gave you imperfect parents to make you more like him. Parents, God didn't give you perfect children to make you happy, but he gave you imperfect children to put the selfless and unconditional love of Christ on display. There's perhaps no one that looks more like God the Father than the father in the story of the prodigal son. Every reason he had to disown his son The son says, give me my inheritance. I don't care whether you die or not. I'm leaving. I don't want to ever see you again. I'm going to go blow everything and live in the lust of this world. And then I'm going to crawl back. Well, he didn't deserve forgiveness. He didn't deserve to be accepted. But the father willfully and gladly met him. And he put a robe on him. He put a ring on him. And that is a picture of the gospel. And your relationship with your children, that selfless and unconditional love that you have, can be a picture of the gospel. Why? Because family life is meant to be gospel reenactment. Next, we see how, as employees, uh, we can reflect the gospel as well, and that's in verse 5 of chapter 6. It says, Bondservants, obey your earthly master with fear and trembling, with a sincere uh, uh, heart, as you would Christ." Man, that's a big deal right there, right? It tells us to obey our earthly masters as we would Christ. Not by the way of eye service or as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. That verse right there tells us to work our job like we're working for Christ, And that means not just with outward obedience, but with a willing heart. Not just an employee that kisses up while the boss is around and then talks trash about him when he turns his back. Hey, I'm here to tell you today that even if your boss is a jerk, you can work for Christ at your job. And you can have integrity, and you can have character, and you can put the love of Jesus Christ on display. I've had some terrible bosses Uh, At times, Andy's got a pretty terrible boss right now. But even if our boss is not the boss that he's supposed to be, we can still be the employee that God has meant us to be. So you'll never be treated worse than Jesus was treated on this earth. So be forgiving, show grace, be long-suffering, because your work should be worship. Hey, just because I am here at the church every single day doesn't mean my job is any more spiritual than your job should be. Your job should be a place of worship. Yeah, you might not be able to share the gospel with everybody because of the rules and the laws, but you can show Christ's love and they can't stop you from doing that. Your work should be worship. J.D. Greer says that work, marriage, and family can all be laboratories for the gospel where you learn to live like Christ and put the love of Christ on display. Next, Paul goes in and he reminds us once again that we are in a battle and we need the strength of Christ. Why? Because we have some weaknesses that need to be protected. We have some vulnerabilities that need to be covered. Verse 11 says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Paul then goes on to talk about the armor of God. 
and he describes each piece, but we're going to look at it a little differently. We're going to look how each piece of the armor of God protects our vulnerabilities. So verse 14 talks about the first one. It says, stand therefore, having on and fastened the belt of truth. Hey, we need the belt of truth. Why? Because we are so susceptible to lies. We must surround ourselves with truth because the devil is the father of lies. And he wants to get you distracted from our purpose. He wants you to get distracted from God. But see, if you don't study the truth, you won't see the lies. I've heard that when in the federal government, when they're training people to detect counterfeit money, the first thing they do is they make them study, study, study what real money looks like and feels like and smells like and maybe tastes like. I don't know. Uh, But they make them study the real money so that they can see the lies. And that's what we need to do as Christians. We need to study the truth, study the truth, so that when something comes in front of us that we're not sure whether it's a lie or not, we'll be able to point it out because we know what God's word said. See, Satan either wants you to doubt God's word or neglect it completely. And either way, they both have the same exact effect. Don't let him defeat you. Put on the belt of truth. And that truth is found in God's word. Next, he tells us in verse 14 to put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate covers our vital organs. And Paul is telling us to saturate ourselves with obedience and doing what is right. That's what righteousness means, doing what is right. See, any area that is not covered in obedience to God is a weak place in your armor and Satan will attack it. It may be a bad habit or a bad relationship, but he will use it to take you down. He will target those areas and he will attack. So we got to get those things right so that he doesn't have those places that he can target on us. We need to bring them into obedience. Here's the question is, what are you not willing to obey God in? Your relationships, your music, your friends, your finances, your hobbies, your dreams. What part of your life Do you say, God, that's off limits for you? You can have this part over here. I'll gladly give you my Sunday morning, but this you can't have. That is This thing over here that you're unwilling to surrender is what the devil will use to take you down. Verse 15 says, as for shoes for your feet, having put on readiness given by the gospel of peace. Here it tells us to put our shoes on and go prepared with the gospel. How often do you think about lost souls? How often do you think about the eternity of the person next to you at work? Are you ready to share Christ? And that's important because if you're actively readying yourself to share the gospel, you're going to approach your day differently. You're going to approach your day less selfishly. So how often are you careful with your actions and words because you might start a gospel conversation with someone that is watching? Josh got pulled over a few weeks ago. (laughs) He was talking on his phone like a dum-dum. He should have known better, right? It's West Virginia. In Georgia, they don't have that law. But he was talking on the phone. And the police officer pulled him over, and Josh was super respectful, and as he always is. And he even he told the, the police officer that was awesome that he was getting pulled over. I'm just kidding. But he, he pretty much, everything is awesome with Josh. He likes the Lego movie, too. Uh, 
But he gets pulled over, and he's real respectful, and he tells them, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm just not used to this. I'm from Georgia. They don't have these laws. Well, uh, the police officer gives him a ticket, and even after that, Josh sticks his hand out the, the window and says, thank you uh, for your service. I appreciate what you're doing out here. Uh, but the police officer said, no, I'm a germaphobe, and, and uh, I'll give you a bump, though. And then Josh felt really dumb because he just bumped this guy that had you know, given him a $100 ticket. Last Sunday, I got pulled over. And like a dum-dum, I was on my phone. I was, now, see, I have a little bit of an excuse. I was at a red light, and I was looking at my phone. I did not really realize that that was illegal, but it is. It definitely is. Well, the police officer came, and, and I, I tried to be as respectful as possible. He asked me if I knew why he pulled me over, and I said, no, I don't specifically know why you pulled me over. I could give you a list of things that I probably did wrong, but we're not you know, going to do that. They always ask you that, like you're going to incriminate yourself like that. I, don't, I have no idea why you pulled me over. I could tell you why I could have been pulled over. The same thing. I was on my phone, told him I was from Georgia, and you know, I'm not, I didn't realize that that was you know, a part of the law, and so I gave him my stuff, and he went back to the car, and, and uh, you know, he sat there, and he came back, he handed me my stuff, and he, he just walked away. I said, well, I'm sorry, what do I do next? And he's like, oh, no, don't worry about it. You know, just, just a warning which is awesome because Josh had to pay $100. I stuck my hand out the window, and he said, no, I'm a germaphobe. And uh, so he wanted to give me a bump again, so it was the same exact police officer. But I had some, uh, next to me in my Jeep, I had some of those invitations to our Christmas service. So I took one of those and said, hey, man, I really appreciate what you're doing, and I just want to invite you to church. Why did I say all that? I'm not pumping myself up. But if I would have acted like a jerk and I would have cussed him out or given him the finger or flipped out, there's no way that I could have invited him to church. And if Josh would have done it, he'd have been real embarrassed when that police officer came in later on uh, in the Christmas season. The point is, is we need to see every interaction with people as an opportunity to share the gospel. Are we readying ourselves with the shoes of the gospel of peace. See, we need to be looking for people and being ready to share the gospel because our timidity with the gospel is a weakness. And the devil can use that to bring apathy and fear and embarrassment with Christ into your life. Hey, why would you be scared to, show, to, to tell somebody about how good your God is? Why would you be scared to tell somebody about what Jesus has done for you? See, we, we Christians, I think... You know, in the last 30 or 40 years, we've really just doubled down on the fact that we're not allowed to do that anymore. We're going to get, like, arrested. But that simply is not true. You can tell people about Jesus. And there's another lie. They tell you that you can't pray in school. You can pray in school. Hey, they they tell you you can't talk about Jesus. A student can talk about Jesus all he wants in school. Hey, we need to remember that we don't need to do the world's job for them and just become super timid. No, we need to get out there and tell people about Jesus and be bold. Why? Because we love him so much and why wouldn't everybody want to know him? Verse 16 goes on and says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. See, Satan wants you to doubt God, but the shield of faith can protect you. Satan wants you to believe the lies that God doesn't love you and that God can't use you and that God can't forgive you. That's what Satan would love for you, just to be crippled by guilt and by fear. 
But you must hide behind your faith in God and remind yourself who God is and remind yourself of what Christ was willing to do to save you and how much power was on display at the resurrection and fight those darts from the enemy. Verse 17 talks about the helmet of salvation, telling us to saturate our mind with the gospel. Remind yourself that Christ is all you need and there is nothing you can do to make God love you any more, nothing you can do to make God love you any less. Remind yourself who you are in Christ. And lastly, verse 17 says, remember to take the sword of the Spirit. What is the sword of the Spirit? It is the Word of God. It tells us to fight the lies of the devil, just like Jesus did in the desert with the Word of God, the Bible. You need to hide God's Word in your heart that you might not sin against Him. That's what the Bible tells us. And if we hide it in there and we hide it in there, it'll stay in there. You need to be able to pull verses out that you can slash the devil's lies to pieces. And if you don't know God's word, you're just going to be a sitting duck that cannot defend yourself. This is the book of Ephesians. Remember this letter that Paul wrote to the church of Ephesus was speaking to a church of, uh, in a non-believing and a hostile context. The very first thing that Paul reminded them is that they were chosen and they were adopted and they were accepted. He reminded them of the hope that they have because of the power of the resurrection and that God can resurrect pieces of us as well. Paul reminded the church in Ephesus that we're still fighting uh, sin and we must submit ourselves and our lives to Christ and let him do the changing. Paul reminded us about how Christ loved the church and that Christ moves through the church, he challenged us to grow up and to use our spiritual gifts. He challenged us to stop acting like a lost person because you're a child of God. And he also challenged us to get prepared because we're in a spiritual war and we need to put our armor on and get ready because we have an enemy that wants to destroy us and to fight the lies with truth. And lastly, he told us that our relationships are training grounds where you learn to be more like Christ and put the love of Christ on display. Marriage, family, and work, they are chances for you to preach the gospel with your life. Let's stand to our feet and bow our heads. The band's going to come. This is the book of Ephesians. Remember who you are. Remember that you're in a battle. Remember what's at stake. Remember who is on your side. With every head bowed and eyes closed, it's a time of reflection, a time of meditation. God, what do you want us to change? Where do you want us to move? What do you want me to do next? Maybe you're here this morning and you need to come and pray with your spouse for your marriage. You need healing or you need protection. Maybe you need to come and pray for your family. Because you, you need to be sure that God is in it and that you're displaying the gospel. Maybe you need to pray for your workplace, that you'll have boldness, that you'll have integrity, and then you'll have character so that when people see you work, they will see the gospel. And that God would show himself through you where you live and in how you love and where you work. Every head's bowed, every eye's closed. Altar's open this morning. I'm going to challenge you to come and pray and ask God to work and move in your life and let your life be a light 
in this dark, dark world. 